The Cabinet has just had a long, detailed and impassioned debate on the draft withdrawal agreement and the outline political declaration. The choices before us were difficult, particularly in relation to the Northern Ireland backstop. But the collective decision of Cabinet was that the government should agree the draft withdrawal agreement and the outline political declaration. Theresa May has returned from Brussels with an EU withdrawal agreement that has angered leavers and remainers alike. It includes a backstop that could keep us in the customs union and bound to EU rules indefinitely. It is not just Remain by another name, it is worse. We would be bound by EU rules with no say over how they are made. Ministers have resigned and MPs have started calling for May's resignation. Brexit is now at a crossroads. I'm Fraser Myers and in this Spike podcast special, I'll be asking three prominent Brexiteers, Dan Hannan, Kate Hoey and Brendan O'Neill. What's wrong with May's deal? How did we get here? And what happens next? Eurocrats are incredulous that Britain has been prepared to sign up to this. We will be half in and half out. Brexit is, is in serious, serious trouble. First of all, I spoke to Dan Hannan in Strasbourg over Skype. Oh yeah, hello, it's Dan Hannan. Hi, can you hear me? Dan is a Conservative member of the European Parliament, a long-time Eurosceptic, and he was one of the founders of Vote Leave. I asked him what he made of May's deal. I think we've actually cracked the sort of Fermat's last theorem of, of Brexit, which is we've come up with a deal that leavers would rather remain than accept and remainers would rather leave properly than accept because it keeps all the worst bits of membership and junks all the acceptable stuff. The idea that Britain would stay in the customs union, would would accept all of their uh, eco standards, their trading standards, their labour laws, etc, etc, but have no say whatever in what those standards should be, you know, no, no other neighbouring country would have accepted that. There's no way that the Swiss or the Norwegians or indeed even the Albanians or the Ukrainians would have accepted that. And it is just extraordinary that Britain, which is the second biggest economy in the EU, the fifth biggest economy in the world, is prepared to settle for a worse deal than any of those countries. The customs union was about the most uncontroversially unpopular part of the whole racket. And we've now got into this unbelievable situation where people want to keep that bit. What this deal would represent is is not actually, as it were, rejecting the result or Brexit in name only. I mean, if if it were that, it wouldn't be as bad as what it actually is. Getting over the line in a way that is worse than if if we left with no deal or if we stayed. I asked Spiked editor Brendan O'Neill about the democratic price of May's deal. It represents in many ways the final betrayal of Brexit because what we have here is, is a deal which completely backtracks on the very thing that people voted for. People voted in vast numbers, more numbers than have ever voted for anything in this country, to take back control. Everyone knew what that meant. Even Remainers who hate the vote know what it means. It means that ordinary British people want there to be greater sovereignty in this country. They want greater democratic clout over what happens in relation to trade and borders and immigration and loads of other issues. What has Theresa May done? She has concocted a deal which gives control back to Brussels. Finally, I met Kate Hoey in Parliament. Kate is a Labour MP, former minister, and is co-chair of Labour Leave. Well, when we finally saw the deal, 
all the promises that had been made about red lines that the Prime Minister had seemed to have been completely shot through. Then when you actually look at the detail, and remember there's 585 pages, a lot of it in what I would call EU-speak language that is not designed for, inverted commas, ordinary people to understand, actually just shows how much we have given away. So how did we end up with such a poor deal? The problem we've had over two years has been a lack of vision and a basic cowardice. We went into these talks, I think, with the attitude that uh, we couldn't walk away and we therefore just had to be as nice as possible in the hope that the EU would reciprocate. Uh, Well, the second bit of that hasn't materialised. We've had the same repeated pattern again and again. Britain is told that some new concession will unlock a final deal, so we make a concession, Brussels pockets the concession, demands more, and incredibly, British Remainers then start cheering. So this happened over paying over more money than we we were technically on the hook for. It's happened over the Irish backstop. It's happened over the customs union. Every time Brussels says, we need more movement, and every time Britain rushes to comply. We went in saying, you know, we're groveling almost that we're sorry we're leaving. But, you know, we'll, we'll make it as easy as possible for you. And it looks like that's what our negotiators have done. And, of course, you have to remember that the civil servants who, who you know, behind the scenes do all the work, the vast, vast majority of them were deeply, deeply sceptical of our decision to leave, didn't want to leave, still think that it's the wrong thing. And despite them being supposedly professional and then turning around to support the government... If you've then got a prime minister who was a Remainer and couldn't even recently say that if there was another vote, she would vote differently or that she could spell out all the good things that would happen when we leave, it's not really, doesn't take it much imagination to understand just why it's gone wrong so 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 badly. Imagine that you were a, a Eurocrat. Imagine that you were an EU negotiator. And every day, You've got the Cleggs and the Majors and the Blairs and the Chakarumunas and the Anna Subris shuttling over on the Eurostar and telling you, listen, hang tough. Don't give an inch. You know, if you're sufficiently hard with the Brits and you make it a sufficiently bad deal, they might drop the whole idea. How are you going to respond to that? I mean, you know, viewers of Spike might realise that Major and Blair are, are unpopular has-beens, but they're regarded in Brussels as men of immense, vast power and influence. And... So in that situation, they've certainly ensured the first part, which is that Brussels offers us an incredibly bad deal. But I suspect they've made a no deal outcome much more likely than it would have been if we'd both negotiated, you know, if the EU side had also negotiated in good faith, looking for a mutually advantageous outcome. For Brendan O'Neill, the problems began even earlier. It started going wrong on the evening of the vote and certainly the very next morning. I remember I I was, even I was shocked, and I don't have much faith in the political class, even I was shocked at the speed with which they turned on this vote and tried to demonise it and tried to write it off as illegitimate or fuelled by lies or fuelled by stupidity or destructive or a nightmare, as David Lammy called it, you know, a few hours after it happened. They turned on it incredibly quickly. And that's one reason, in fact, that Spike launched our campaign to invoke Article 50, because we knew that um, elements in the political establishment would 
round on this vote and seek to undermine it and destroy it. And that's exactly what happened. So it started very early on and it gathered pace from there. So we saw legal challenges against the Brexit vote. We saw people calling on the House of Lords basically to water it down or to dilute it. We saw, of course, enormous pressure from Brussels to make Britain stay in various different parts of the of the European Union. From all quarters, we have had this relentless attack on the largest democratic vote in British history. And sometimes I think it's really worth taking a step back and trying to see this in some historical perspective. And if we do that, what we will see is that we had one of the greatest, largest acts of democracy in the history of this nation. And the majority of the political establishment went to war against it. One of the major sticking points in the negotiations was the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. But Kate Hoey, who sits on the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee, says the issue is blown out of all proportion by the EU. Actually, when you look at the overall trading relationship, very little trade goes back and forward across the border. Most of the Republic of Ireland's trade goes to Great Britain and then on to the EU. Uh, Most of Northern Ireland's trade goes to Great Britain. So that is the crucial bit. But the Irish government, particularly under the current uh, T-shirt, Baradka, have very cleverly made the border issue and linking it with the Belfast Agreement, which actually really said nothing about the EU and had very little mention of the border, um, into this kind of idea that somehow if we didn't do all these special things and make Northern Ireland different, there would be a hard border. Well, a hard border for me is big structures and lights and cameras, all of which were only there ever, uh, really, to uh, stop terrorism and terrorists coming across the border. Um, We've The Republic of Ireland has a different excise duties from us. They have different VAT rates. Smuggling goes on. There are customs officers around who will stop lorries. It it has been made into this huge, huge issue. And yet we saw in the Northern Ireland Select Committee just this week experts from customs, real, real experts, who have been saying for some time that there are solutions But no one has wanted to listen to them because the political decision was almost taken by an agreement between the Irish government and the EU. And then the UK went along with it, that this this was the only way was for Northern Ireland to be treated differently. I asked Kate how this came through in May's deal. It's it's keeping control over first while they'll be keeping control over the whole of the United Kingdom customs arrangements. But then afterwards, Northern Ireland would carry on. And so we would still be subject to the laws and we'd be subject to the European Court of Justice and we'd be paying in money. So we can't have a situation where Northern Ireland is left in some kind of backstop position that we can't even get out of. If anybody with any common sense looking at this agreement, I don't see they can possibly think that it's in the best interests of, of the country, whether you're a Remainer or a Lever. Euroscepticism in Britain goes back much further than the referendum of 2016. Are the British people, when they vote in a general election, to be able to change the policies of the government that has previously been there? You people in Britain, you've always been worried about uh, sovereignty. Whatever government's in power, our agricultural policy is now controlled from Brussels. Our trade policy is controlled from Brussels. We are European, pro-European. We support European people, but we're against the European Union. Our industrial policy is controlled from Brussels. I asked our Brexiteers why they first decided Britain should leave the EU. 
it's always been pretty clear to me that the European Union is it, it might present itself as this happy clappy institution that maintains peace and liberalism and decency in Europe and and prevents us all from descending into fascism once again but that's always just been a front for what the EU really is which is a, an institution through which the leaders of Europe can pull their sovereignty and uh, engage in politics as far away from their own publics as possible. The real turning point for me was the Maastricht Treaty. Uh, so 1992 or 19, the end of 1991, when it was clear what was, what was coming, uh, that was the moment at which the EU stopped being a club of nations, stopped being a block of countries united by trade and, and cooperation, and became in effect, a country in its own right, or something that aspired to become a country in its own right, with a passport and a national anthem and a flag and an army and a police force and, you know, external borders and a president and a parliament and currency and all the rest of it. I mean, that, that was actually the moment at which the European Union was born. You know, it had been the European Economic Community up until then, so it wasn't as though they were, they were hiding the change. I've always been in a EU sceptic. One of my early votes was to vote against joining the common market. And then gradually over the years, you know, I saw very clearly that it, was, it was, wasn't what it was set out to be, that it really was part of a project to get a federal Europe. And I believe in the nation state. It doesn't mean you, that, you, that you become a nationalist, but you can believe in the nation state. I was very clear that I wanted a referendum, and we've had all these treaties passed, treaty after treaty, with nobody ever being asked their view. Uh, and even when we joined, we weren't asked until after we'd been in for two years, which is always more difficult. So I decided certainly that I would be campaigning for a referendum. And then when we got the referendum, um, I, I just I always felt that when I'd been around the country and talked to people, there was this inherent anti-EU feeling. And that's exactly why we did, we did win. One thing that became painfully clear with David Cameron's renegotiation is that the EU is absolutely not prepared. To, to devolve any power to a member state. It, it would rather lose its second biggest financial contributor than set the precedent that power can be decentralised. And I think that was when Brexit became inevitable. I was always very sceptical of this kind of sniffy attitude that you know British journalists and British politicians have always had towards Eurosceptics. They've always looked down upon Eurosceptics either as um, posh privileged idiots or the bovine, stupid, uneducated working classes who, who want bendy bananas or whatever else it might be. They've always had this incredibly um, haughty attitude towards anyone who was critical of the European Union. And that's going back decades. They've always had that attitude. And that, I think, was an early indicator of what was to come. It was an early indicator of the vicious elitist assault on democracy that we have had, that we have been living through over the past two years. So I, I, I've always believed that the true nature of the European Union was a very anti-democratic one. Uh, I think um, ordinary British people's instinctive dislike of it has always been correct. And I think uh, what we're now witnessing is a political establishment which, which simply cannot tolerate the existence of this majoritarian view which thinks the EU has got to go. Well, at 20 minutes to five, we can now say the decision taken in 1975 by this country to join the common market has been reversed by this referendum uh, to leave the EU. 
British people have spoken and the answer is, we're out. So what have we learnt from the last two years? Brendan O'Neill. We now know that we live under a political class that is willing to throw democracy under the bus in order to save the European Union, which I think is the most idiotic, unprincipled, undemocratic trade-off in modern British history. They are so determined to maintain the status quo and to maintain the political structures that have grown up over the past 40 or 50 years that they are willing to write off the thing that people fought and died for for a very long time, which is the right of ordinary people to have a serious, meaningful say over the future of their nation. Outside London, things are still very different. And the rallies we've been doing with Leave Means Leave in the last few few months have shown that genuinely people's views have not changed. And, you know, that is despite the kind of dire warnings about a no deal, what it would mean. Everything was, despite Brexit, if it was good and it was, it was because of Brexit if something bad was announced. What we've seen through this whole calamity that Brexit has become under the utterly incompetent leadership of Theresa May, what we've seen is that the Tory party, even Tory Eurosceptics, do not have the courage of their convictions. They will not stand up for what 17.4 million people voted for. And anyone who still thinks that Boris Johnson is going to ride in and save the day, or that Michael Gove might suddenly remember that he's supposed to be a principled critic of the EU and then come out against Theresa May, they will be waiting a long time. And that's, I think, one of the, the most bracing lessons that ordinary people are taking from this, which is you can't really trust the political parties. Because we have to remember, not only did we have a referendum in which Brexit convincingly won, but also in the general election last year, both the Tories and Labour went into the election with manifestos promising to leave the single market and leave the customs union. And I've heard a lot of people saying that if the Tories don't make Brexit happen in a real way, if Labour continues to go down the route of cozying up to its new posh middle class Remainer support base, then they will lose faith in these parties. They will lose faith in the act of voting itself. They will not trust Theresa May or Jeremy Corbyn or anyone again. And, and that, I think, would be a real disaster. So what happens next? May's deal is so unpopular with both Leavers and Remainers, it looks like it might not even get through Parliament. But what happens then? Some are calling for a second referendum, others for a no-deal Brexit. Kate Hoey. I have to say that given that we've seen how the EU works and they've behaved and that we've got to know some of those EU commissioners, I don't fear a second referendum. I think we would actually leave would win by even more. But it's just wrong. And it would make a lot of people who'd voted feel that democracy didn't really matter anymore. And when I went around the country and we did rallies, it was people who, were, who had never voted before, many of them, coming up and saying they thought their vote mattered this time. That's why I'm so concerned. Dan Hannan. Well, my guess, I mean, who knows? I've given up trying to, 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 to predict that kind of thing. But, but my, my guess is that if all, all the MPs vote the way they have said they will vote and, and assess this deal on the basis of the criteria that they've set out, I can't see how it gets through Parliament. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I, I look at the numbers and I just can't see how it would go through. And I think that then we have, you know, a, a chance to try and get a different kind of deal, a, a, a looser one, a more minimalist one. We've got very little 
time left, but one that would just cover the basic courtesies that any country would expect to have with a neighboring country. Uh, and then we can work on the future partnership from there. So finally, the million dollar question. How do we ensure that the Brexit 17.4 million Brits voted for is delivered? We have to do something. Brexit is in serious, serious trouble. We are witnessing the demoralisation of democracy in this country in a way that I don't think we have witnessed since every adult got the vote in 1928. To become an independent country again, we need to be leaving properly. People understand out there that this was a shock to the entire elites in this country, that they weren't listened to, you know, the banks weren't listened to, the industry wasn't listened to, the senior politicians weren't listened to. Everybody who was sort of part of that establishment said the world will end if you, if you vote to leave, and of course it hasn't. And uh, we now have to get that same fight and determination to prove them wrong that a no-deal is not the end of the world either, and that long-term we are going to be so much better if we become a genuinely independent country. There are worse things in the life of a nation than some temporary disruption in its supply lines. In fact, a no-deal scenario can be the beginning of a great national renaissance. If Britain were prepared to respond to a no-deal Brexit by removing its trade barriers, particularly its trade barriers to poorer countries, we would mitigate 90% of the downside. We have to find a way to get this issue away from a political class who don't want to see it through, away from a political establishment that is too scared of the consequences of Brexit to be able to make it a reality, and back into the hands of the public who have shown daring and ambition and bravery in demanding this massive change that Brexit would bring about. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. If you enjoyed the show, why not give us a rating and a review? And if you want to help Spike to keep up the fight for Brexit, please give us a donation by visiting spiked-online.com and hitting the donate button. The Spike podcast will be back next week, so make sure you've subscribed and we'll see you then.